0: Hello, I'm Scott Winstead, President of FMI Consulting. In this special edition, our very own Tracy Smith talks with Mike Humphrey from DPR about culture
1: and the importance of having a purpose. Hello, and welcome to FMI's Built-In Podcast. My name is Tracy Smith, and I'm a senior consultant with FMI's Leadership and Organizational Development Practice Team, and have the pleasure of hosting the second special edition of the Built-In Podcast. Today, we are diving into the world of culture to gain a better understanding of what it is, how you reinforce it, and the challenges that work from home has created in maintaining strong cultures. In FMI's recently released 2023 talent study, culture was highlighted as a key component of attracting and retaining talent in today's highly competitive talent landscape. With one executive sharing with us that young folks today want to work for firms with a purpose and that live it out. If you have it, it's an advantage. So our guest today, who will help us break down the what, the why, and the how of culture is Mike Humphrey from DPR. Mike started his career at DPR as an intern in 1992 and was the 48th employee when he joined as a project engineer. He's a member of DPR's leadership team and has been focused on building the people practice leadership team and is also now focusing on initiatives in the Northeast. Mike, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Tracy, thanks so much for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to the conversation.
1: Awesome. Well, we're glad you're here. And the reason we're glad you're here is because when we ask some of our clients to think about a company that has a strong culture, oftentimes folks bring up DPR. So I would love for you just to start with how you would describe DPR's culture.
0: Well, first, I'm very thrilled to be thought of in that company. One of the things you described that came out of the FMI study is that people want to work for an organization with purpose. And that's the word that comes to mind first for me, is that I think our culture is extremely purposeful. We're purposeful in the kinds of people that we ask and let join DPR. We're very purposeful on the customers and the kind of work that we choose to do. We're very purposeful on how we engage in our communities and how we take care of our people. So there's a real purpose behind it. Even the things that we build have purpose. We're in healthcare because they're in the business of saving lives. Same with life science. We chose higher ed. They're in, in the business of educating the future. And a lot of the work we do on those campuses is healthcare and life science. And we, uh, we chose a market of advanced tech and about how to use information in ways that advance the industry. There's real purpose to the culture we want and hope that people who come to work at DPR, if they're trying to find the meaning of life, they're finding out uh, I've got meaning here and there's meaning in the work that I'm doing.
1: That's so important. I love just how critical it is that you said, hey, the purpose why this firm exists and the, the things that we do, that's our foundation for our culture. That's right. And so I would love to hear about some of the components of your culture. I think you call them your central beliefs. Can you share those a little bit?
0: We talk about our culture a lot. And um, I, I think we're one of the few organizations that if, if you asked any individual in the company what our core values are, they're going to recite them. They're going They're going to tell you our core values are enjoyment, ever forward, integrity, and uniqueness. Those have been our, our core values since you know, since the beginning of the company, since Doug, Peter, and Ron first asked themselves, what kind of company do we want to create? Notice that none of those are, are, are a success metric around finances, around profitability. The other components of our culture are really the things that we think if we do really well, the profits will follow. So I told you that I would describe us as a purposeful, purpose-filled organization. We have a purpose. Our purpose is we exist to build great things. And when we talk to people in the company, inside and out, what, what are great things? Well, we really want to build great projects. We want to be a great builder. But we're also, we want to build great relationships. We want to build great people. We want to build a great company, overall a great business. We want to build great teamwork. And so there's there's the great things is projects, but it's so much more. So we're purpose-filled and we we make values-based decisions with those four core values And we're a company on a mission. So that's kind of our third component, purpose, core values, mission. We are currently on a mission to be a most admired company by the year 2030. We had a previous mission statement, which was to be a a truly great builder by the year 2000. And in 2000, in the years following that, we we chose our next mission statement to be a 30 year out goal, to be most admired in the eyes of our people, in the eyes of our communities, in the eyes of our customers, our trade partners, Really being most admired is kind of self-defined, but that's kind of the, the third component, be a most admired company. And notice it's not limited to, to be a most admired construction company. We talk about these three components a lot. And then in addition to those is what you mentioned earlier, which is kind of our, our central beliefs or our enduring beliefs. And that's a whole series of things that we talk about a lot. It's It's shared leadership. It's trying to keep our organization as flat as possible so opportunity exists for all. It's about keeping score. So there's there's a number of these that are really, really central beliefs to us that they're a part of our culture, but they're they're not the same as our mission, our purpose, and our core values.
1: Appreciate you saying that because I think oftentimes when we talk about culture, it can be a really fuzzy conversation. You're like, what does that mean? Because there's so much that goes into creating a culture. Core values is certainly a part of it, but being clear on the purpose, being clear on you know those those central beliefs of how we're gonna do business all influence the culture that people feel both internally and external to the organization. Yeah. And it's got
0: to be felt in the organization. It's not, it's not slogans on a website. It's not posters on a wall. It's how people feel. Do I, am I really a part organization that shares leadership? Those are the kinds of things that we we challenge ourselves with all the time. and, And we really do. We point back at and make decisions about who we put in leadership seats for those who really most demonstrate mission purpose values.
1: And I'd be curious to hear the story of just how the purpose, the values, what was the process you all went through or continue to go through to define that? And who's involved in that process?
0: This is actually one of my favorite stories and and definitely a reason why I joined DPR. In 1990, Doug, Peter, and Ron all worked for what was arguably the the strongest and one of the most respected construction companies on the West Coast. And they really wanted opportunities to lead in that organization. And when those opportunities didn't didn't come to be, they decided, well, then we've got to go create our own. We've got to go create this environment we've been dreaming about for so long. And uh, they broke away in 1990. was not necessarily a great construction year. But the first thing they did when they organized a business was to say, what kind of a company do we want to create? and they thought about these mission, purpose, and values. In the first couple of years, you can imagine, you know, I, you mentioned I was one of 48 employees. We were all doing everything to build the business. Super exciting time. Money was lean, of course, because the company was young. But in early years, we came across an uh, associate professor or adjunct professor at Stanford, Jim Collins. He was in the process of writing his first book, Built to Last. And a few of our leaders had kind of you know heard, heard about Jim and went to go see Jim and, and meet with him. And the book was basically about which companies survive from the first generation to the second. There's a, a statistic that something like 80% of companies fail in the first transition from first leadership group to second leadership group. Jim wanted to study the 20%. What was it that made them built to last? And super intriguing. Again, the book hadn't even really come out. It was just in concept and was soon to come out. And that it was at that time that Doug, Peter, and Ron made a brave decision to say, with limited resources in the bank, we're going to pay Jim to give, could sit with us and take some time to talk through what, what do we stand for. And at the time, they weren't talking about, OK, what are our, fo- our focus core markets or what kind of leaders we put in place? They talked about how the organization wanted to look and feel and the, the meaningfulness of the organization, which is really held true. So that was, that was the beginning of organizing our culture. But we didn't write it down until 2008. In 2008, there were words that we were starting to use again and again and again. And Peter Nozer, for example, at every every meeting that we would start, we, he was starting with one of those concepts. So it was a very public conversation, but it became critical to us that we can't have a bottleneck where all decisions have to be made by one person. It just, it's not going to work. We're too dynamic of an organization. We need to be able to figure out how we share and, and trust our leaders are making decisions and how we communicate. So there's a, a bunch of those kind of central beliefs that became a part of our conversation that 18 years after the organization was was created, we decided we had to, we had to capture these. We had to get them on paper. And it, more than just saying it was an aspirational thing that we want to be, it was what we'd proven for 18 years was successful for us and what helped drive the company in a good way. So in 2008, we wrote the first version of what we call our point of view. The point of view is not equal to our culture. The point of view is a record, is a document that sort of captures how we expect ourselves to behave. And and how we expect ourselves to act. Long long way of getting there, but very organic way of holding true to our culture.
1: Such a cool story, and you know when you think about having conversations about defining culture, right? It's really about who we are at our core. It's very much looking at what has made us successful. What are those things that supported our growth and, and helped us do what we want to do in, in such a positive way? A lot of clients we talk to these days, they're they're a small company. It's really easy to have that close knit where we've got alignment on beliefs, even if they're not written down on what that culture is. And when they start to grow, that's where the fear comes. Like, well, how do we maintain this culture as we grow? And I'd be curious as you you all have grown, what are the things that you've done to cascade the culture and to reinforce it so that it is maintained through that growth?
0: You can almost think about DPR in terms of decades. First decade, tremendous growth. 0 to 2 billion dollars in the first 10 years and we were we were building everything having a lot of fun hiring a lot of people but not having truly great results. So in that first decade we learned a lot about kind of what not to do as as you're growing really fast and and how to identify the right people and the right work. Second decade we had to get some discipline in the organization because we made a lot of decisions, chased a lot of work And then the third decade, we actually took another staggering growth and and have grown ourselves now to a $10 billion organization. But we learned the lessons of the first decade. And so as we're bringing people on board and hiring at scale, the first thing we want to do is make sure that for whatever role we're trying to fill, that the pool of candidates is diverse and has diverse thinking, diverse background, true diversity, because that's what helps keep our organization living up to our core values of uniqueness and, and ever forward. And it, it really, there's a real business driver to making better, more creative problem solving with, with a more diverse team. So diverse candidate pool first. Second, the interview team should be diverse. We're working as hard as we can. I mean, a lot, I know a lot of bias is unconscious, but we're working to drive the bias out so that you don't just say that person's a DPR fit. You got five or six people who are who are evaluating components of DPR culture in the interview process. We have a lot of questions that are about your technical skills when we're interviewing people. But what everyone's listening for are the cultural connections in, in those answers and how we're working with team or, or being creative or being entrepreneurial. So first, I drive the bias out of the process, but then it's like five to six interviews. We're We're really being very careful about the way we bring people on board. I think I have the statistic right. For every 17 people who apply to work at DPR, one gets hired. So there is a pretty high bar in making sure we have the right fit through the right process.
1: That's so critical. The people alignment. Got to have that to start with. Can teach the technical stuff. You know, you've got to, you've got to have that foundational stuff, right? That you talked about is there's got to be kind of that that bar. But that stuff's a lot easier to teach than shifting somebody's values and how they show up day to day with the team.
0: So true, so true.
1: And I think we're talking about just how this shapes the business. And I'd like to dive a little bit deeper in there. And maybe first, how does culture impact how you've organized the business?
0: Well, there is a piece of our central and enduring beliefs that we we describe as a flat organization. Culturally, we'd like the organization to be as flat as possible. We intentionally do our best not to introduce ourselves with titles, but rather with roles and responsibilities. That's really how we've we've built the organization to be pretty decentralized, and so that our our culture really lives where people feel like I've got an opportunity to grow into that leadership seat. It's not such a steep hierarchy of roles that I may never see myself getting into a leadership seat. So that's a that's a really important part of organizing the business. The first office that we opened was in Redwood City, California. Some people call it the mothership or the headquarters. but in truth, we've got strength in all five regions of the of the organization. The regions are really the Northwest, Southwest, northeast, southeast, and then the central region fills the the middle. So in each of those, we've got leadership opportunity, leadership independence no doubt there are some things we have to do consistently that we sort of set as these are centralized beliefs that we all will behave together in these ways one of those is the core markets that i mentioned we've agreed that we are all going to work in these five core markets meaning we're, we're we're not in in residential at all we're not in sort of heavy industrial we we are in these core markets that we think are highly technical so that's one of those centralized characteristics otherwise the, the business units have complete freedom to figure out which customers and that they want to chase, the projects they want to chase and and how they want to hire people to staff those projects so this flat organization uh, allows for a lot of the culture to live without feeling like you're a number you know
1: in a bigger game i'd be curious how your culture influences how you make decisions or the type of decisions that you make
0: yeah well if you think about like, maybe a traditional hierarchy being a pyramid ours is truly upside down the, the very top, the 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 front lines is where we want to focus as much energy as we can, as much decision-making power, influence is at the front lines where people are literally, they're, they're the ones working with trade partners. They're the ones putting the work in place that we need to feed them with all the right information at the right time so they can make decisions. And and then there's this whole layer of, of trust where we say, you don't have like a spending limit. You could, if you feel that you can make a decision that costs, you know, $1,000 and, and you're the right person to make the decision, make it. It's 10,000, 100,000, but you will know when you're uncomfortable making a decision if you're putting the business at risk or if you're not completely sure. And we trust that you'll raise your hand and you'll get help. And that's where if you work your way down this upside down pyramid, the group right beneath the front lines, whoever's managing the projects, their job is to support the front lines. And if we've got a level that you might describe as an executive level, their job is to support the management level. And at a leadership team level, all of us, it is 100% our job every day to support our leaders and give them the tools they need to work its way up to the front lines.
1: Love that. And the fact that you figured out how to make that work is pretty phenomenal and it's no wonder why people love working there because they have the autonomy to be able to really lean in and learn and do what they think is best.
0: There's another critical component and I it, it, we don't talk about this specifically but you see it in action. So Someone on the front line someday is going to make a mistake. They're going to overextend themselves. They're going to make a mistake, and it's going to cost us something. Hopefully, it doesn't cost us a relationship with a customer, but these are going to happen. When they do, our first reaction is, what did we learn? Let's talk about what we learned. And it could be a scary thing to be a front lines teammate who made a mistake and then gets to stand in front of his peer group and explain the mistake not in a belittling way, but in a, man, that was a tough lesson to learn. I hope you don't have to learn it the same way I did. It's really culturally important to us that that's how we think about growth. Now, you know, people making repeated mistakes are probably the wrong person, but everyone makes mistakes. And if you're not stretching yourself, then we would never grow. And we have to be able to at some point take calculated risks so we can grow and we got to support the people who are taking them.
1: So you talked about relationships with clients and project partners. And, and I'd be curious, how how do you align your culture with those? How does your culture play into selecting partners that you want to work with? What does that look like?
0: We've got what we call our, our, our red zone. Red zone actually is another Jim Collins uh, concept. And it basically, if you can figure out work where you've got passion around it, where you can perform really well, and it can fuel your economic engine, In the in the center of those three circles is this red zone. We actually put together a series of of questions for ourselves to test, will this project or this relationship with this customer put us in the red zone where we're fired up to do the work, where we know we can be really good and, and unique at it, where it's technically challenging and because of it, we can price that risk and actually be really profitable. So think about all those questions. One of the most important ones for us is, will it be fun? Will this work be fun? Will will the customer be engaging is kind of what we're getting at. And there's another one that basically the, the question is, do we have direct access to the owner, to the, the decision makers, or is there a layer in between? And the real question is about the our ability to make decisions and participate in how we come up with, with ideas with an owner, if it it needs to be the kind of thing that's collaborative. And if we've got a layer in between us that blocks that collaboration, so there's a couple right there that really would be at odds with our culture. And they're literally questions you have to check before you pursue a project. So that's baked in.
1: When you don't have that access and you're working with somebody that doesn't have the same sense of collaboration if you feel like you're beating your head against a wall
0: yeah and I will tell you this too we, have, we work for a lot of wonderful customers really collaborative who are you know in their own way trying to change the world but there are some that are are really really tough on our teams they're they're driving to the bottom lines and they don't care who they step on to get there they're rare they're truly rare but we have, the way we describe it is we have fired some customers and we've made decisions not to pursue work with some customers where regardless of how great the returns could be, if it's going to take a toll on our people, it's not worth it.
1: Quarter our culture. That's the decision we're going to make because it's more important to maintain what it feels like to work here.
0: Yeah.
1: All right. So let's talk about the pandemic. So, and maybe just if you can think back to when that all started, would love if you would share some challenges. What were you seeing? What were you experiencing?
0: Boy, I I would say the pandemic is one of the greatest tests of any culture, certainly of ours. The pandemic hit and there there was so much unknown and there was so much fear of that unknown and locations getting shelter in place orders and don't go to work unless you're an essential business. And not all of construction was immediately identified as an essential business. So now the fear gets worse because we got, well, if I can't go to work, I'm not going to get a paycheck. And so, oh man, the fear's doubled. Well, we just quickly put our technology and innovation group to work and really quickly, they created a kind of a health screening app that basically asked all the CDC questions and sort of confirmed that, you know, you were safe to come to work, that included a temperature scan, included, you know, exposure risks. And we were able to like put together a tool that right there on the spot would be able to identify if you're at risk or not. And if you were at risk, we we said, go home and f- until you feel healthy again. We had, we had really, you know, large scale owners who were saying, hey, we're sheltering in place. So we're shutting the jobs down. And we were able to show them before almost any other contractor, no, we can prove that we are entering this job site safely and we're going to work safely. We've got all the distancing protocol in place. It happened so quickly. And then with that health screening app, anybody who was interested, like, where did you get that? We said, we built it, but here, here's, you can use it. Just take it. If it works for you, we would rather give that away and help the industry get back on its feet. So that was kind of the first thing is we are, we're a hands-on business. But I would say maybe even more important than that, we really are a collaborative business. And even then, the first six months of the pandemic, it became clear to us that our folks that we're looking at a, on Zoom meeting eight hours a day, those folks are less productive, without collaboration, less creative. And honestly, as you looked at the look on people's faces over time, less happy. And so we, we really made a point of saying, hey, for for the health of, of you and our, and our business, we're really supportive of getting you back to work, defaulting to getting back to work in person. It's more than just because we want to keep projects going, which was true, but also because of the toll it was taking on our people. And this is not everybody. So the the phrase we sort of came up with and, and asked people to hang on to was this, be flexible, be real, be fair. And so the first step there in flexibility, man, I remember coming into the industry and you know my friends and everybody who started, in the, they were all measured by the number of hours they put in how early you get to the job site and how late you stay, which of course is no measure of your effectiveness. It's just like, it, it's just one of those indicators. So there's this industry thing of like, you know, you got to be there. And so the first one, Hey, we're going to be flexible. It's it's okay to be flexible and where it's possible and people feel safer and and can be productive working from home. Okay. But it also let's be real, be, be real about how how productive can you really be? And what's really happening if you're at home versus what's happening to the folks at the job site? There's a penalty to the folks at the job site who don't have access to the person who's walking by their desk every day. So, in fairness, we wanted to say, hey, let's get the people who can, who really feel the, the most susceptible, let's protect them. And then for, for those who are seeing kind of get, get exhausted on Zoom meetings, it's more fair to say our standard expectation is that everybody comes to work, but we're going to be flexible and have outliers of that. But the standard is, we're better together when we work together so you know it it has generated some inconsistent decisions from project to project or office to office and we're we're sort of allowing that yeah, that it's got to work for the team and what works for the team doesn't need to be dictated in a centralized way
1: having those decisions made at different levels i imagine the executive team still needs a way to get a pulse of what's going on across the entire company what are some of the ways that you all do that And as you go out to get those pulses, what are some of the challenges you're facing in maintaining your culture? And what are you doing about them?
0: Well, I got to admit, the pandemic did take a toll on our culture. We do a lot of things together as teams. We would do, you know, our our town hall meetings were a really big deal. And we got great attendance to those. And summer picnics and holiday parties, just a lot of things that really brought us together and seeing the humans in each each of us. So as as things kind of loosened up, our president and our CEO – George Fraffer and Mark Whitson made a concerted decision to go to every single office and hold what we called culture con. The con is for conversation. And as they went to each office, we didn't just invite the admin employees, we invite all the craft as well, so that we're we're really getting a full cross-section of of the the folks who are are building our projects. Every single office, and it was really a panel discussion, talking about what's important to us and and elements of our culture, and then opening it up for any questions. We've got this awesome translator who translates in real time. I don't know how his brain does it, but he's able to listen and almost a second behind the words he's he's translating. And he translated it into what he calls the, the voice of your heart, the language of your heart for our Spanish speaking audience and, and, and people. We open the questions in Spanish and in English. You know, the first questions are always very, very tame and respectful. But as people feel a sense of safety, they say they were asking more difficult questions. Hey, what are you really doing to make sure the craft are safe out here? What what are you really doing to make sure that we've got ongoing work in front of us? It was pretty challenging questions that the panel took with complete honesty. Like some of them, they're like, we're still trying to figure it out. Or some of them are like, we will get get back to you with answers on this one that we we shared. All that cultural stuff was not just talking about the, the culture, which was important to do, but demonstrating the culture in the way that we answered questions, included the whole organization, we spent a whole year doing it. I think 28 locations. That turned out to be a, a really big deal for us. And now we're kind of getting back to including culture in people's onboarding plans, including culture in how we start our meetings again, like Peter and Oser used to do. So we're we're getting a little bit back to the norm.
1: Almost kind of hitting that refresh button again, like, hey, we gotta make sure this is still priority. Let's let's go back to what worked for us before.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Anything else you think it'd be worthy to share with your peers across the industry, being really clear on what good looks like and how to make sure that it's felt up, down across the organization? A
0: couple of things come to mind. The first, most obvious one is it has to be genuine. If you're aspiring towards something, that's no problem. That's great. But if you can't show it, if if people see contrary decisions being made or contrary actions, it all falls apart. So clearly, it's got to be really very, very genuine. The other thing is it's hard to schedule culture time, you know, like, all right, we're going to stop and you can do it. You can say, hey, at lunch today, we're going to open up our point of view and we're going to read page eight and we're going to talk about it. And so you can do it, but it more often happens where if you're aware of a situation and, and asking yourself, how would our culture have us answer this situation or address this situation? And that's that's really where it has to live as in a leader's mind is, oh, this is this is a part of my decision-making process. And that that way you're talking about it. It's like for us, safety is a really huge thing. Every construction company it is. But when we walk job sites, you can see someone on a ladder and yell at them, get out of that, get off that ladder or we're firing you or whatever you want. Or you can walk up and hey, hey, can you come down for a second? I want to have a conversation with you. Hey, "Is is there a better tool we can use to get this job done? You know, that's 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 a violation of a safety. And we we don't want you to get hurt. We can't stand it. So you think about the approach to that. Our culture would say we're gonna respect the individual in some way. And part of that respect is we're not gonna let you get hurt. So there's there's things like that in approach that I think become really important to your culture. You, you have to demonstrate your culture as much as you, as you talk about it.
1: Well, this is all the time we have today, Mike. And I just thank you so much for joining us to share a little insight into DPR's culture and how you created it, the challenge you faced and the, the importance of driving who you are as a business. So really appreciate your time today.
0: Well, once again, thanks so much for the invitation. I think we will probably always consider ourselves a work in progress. And so uh, thanks for letting me share some
1: stories. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. And thank you all for listening to this special edition of the FMI Built-In Podcast. Please remember to like or subscribe the podcast. Make sure you don't miss any of our other episodes. Have a great rest of your day.